Hears You. Episode 12, Knock Knock. There's something looking at me. There's something looking at me and I'm afraid there always has been. I used to think it wasn't true that I had some of my aunt's psychosis and that's all, but at a certain point those kinds of hopes slowly died away. It's funny to think that someone could ever hope for something like that, and I'm sure that could be chalked up as some sort of looming privilege. I suppose it is in the end. For the longest time, I didn't really know how my mother's sister died. That was never the sort of thing that was an easy chat over a dinner table, but I did know that my mom didn't leave her bedroom for over a week after we got the news. This was back before the internet, so even though I was in high school at the time, I remained blissfully ignorant for the most part. Still, now and then word did get through, even if we never knew what was true and what wasn't, if any of it was at all. There was always a chance, I suppose. I remember someone telling me that she'd done her very best to swallow whole a red-hot curling iron. Another day was that she'd hanged herself with barbed wire right in the middle of her backyard, only to be discovered by a young boy who lived next door. I don't know which I'd rather it had been, if I'm being honest. You didn't have to know Aunt Laura to understand that neither option was ideal. I remember her as being a skittish woman, the kind of on edge that could be mistaken for prim and proper, but really just wound up being the closely held secret that she had demons that she was determined to keep to herself. The truth always loomed when she visited, or we attended family functions and got to see her again, but I think the worst part was that she really wasn't that different. I will and truly mean that. She was skittish, like a dog scarred by a firework explosion. But that was it. She was, she was nice, and more than that, she was kind. Her eyes darted, and every time she laughed, it sounded like something she was well and truly desperate to do. But she really was an ordinary woman. And now, granted, I was a high schooler at the time, so there were undoubtedly plenty of things I didn't quite catch, but I wasn't stupid. The simplest way to put it is that at that point in my life, I'd already known more than enough people who gave off more warning signs than Aunt Laura, and to be perfectly frank, I'd known dozens more as I made my way through college down in Louisiana. There was no warning sign that made her special, no red flag that made her stand out. She was just a small woman in her 40s who always seemed so happy to laugh and be in the company of friends and family. I don't think I'll ever forget her smile and how white her teeth were, how full of life and joy she could sometimes seem. That's the version of her I'll always remember, the one that hugged me tight and brought me strange trinkets she always managed to find in thrift stores and antique shops. That Laura was my friend, my family, and she never failed to let me know that I was loved. The older you get, the more special you realize that is. The last time I heard about her death was at a bar in New Orleans. I was out with my parents and we'd had a little too much to drink because it was just after I graduated from med school and they made a point of being in town to celebrate with me. It was nice, really. If you've never had anyone die in your family, then you've yet to know or understand the dark cloud it can leave hanging low and heavy overhead. 
We were still a happy troupe, or at least as happy as middle class and grief can manage, but Laura was my mother's only sister, and she was as close as she could be to me, my brother, and my father. Quite odd and frequently distant, but always there when she thought she might be needed. It was because of her I decided to be a doctor as a child. She told me that life is short, so there's nothing you could do that's better than helping people live for a little longer for the sake of those around them. That stuck with me. It always has, really. I remember how it made me feel like a superhero. I remember, more than anything, how I told her I would never let her down. Anyway, at the bar, after our fourth drink, my mom got really sad. Dangerously sad, I guess you could say, and she excused herself from the table for almost an hour. I later found out that she'd locked herself in a bathroom stall and sobbed, the sort of heart-wrenching sounds that made the ladies' room a bit off-limits as patrons shared the men's instead. I didn't need to ask my dad what was wrong or what had happened, it was always the same thing. Either she'd stumbled across an old letter, an old photo, or simply wandered down the path of a distant memory that had been a portrait painting of two instead of one. He didn't say exactly what it was this time, only that he'd found some of Laura's old things and had made the mistake of telling mom about it. He said he thought it might promote some healing, old toys and that kind of thing, but the way his lips twisted made perfectly clear that it was as stupid an idea as it sounded to me under the low light of a flickering neon beer sign. Since we were a couple drinks in and I've always been partial to a vodka soda, I asked him how long he thought it was going to be until mom got over it and let Laura rest. It was a stupid thing to say and something that causes my stomach to shrivel with guilt even now, but I said it, and I know why I did. I was just tired of seeing her in pain, that's all. It wasn't judgment or ill will or anything like that, I just didn't want to see her cry anymore. Thankfully, my dad's always been a good man. A quiet man, but in that stalwart and bolstering way. And so when he looked up at me, he didn't snap or cut me down. He simply shook his head and said that was never going to happen. I remember protesting. I think I might have started gesturing with my hands, which is something I'm always bound to do. But I remember so clearly the weight in his eyes as he shrugged and said, It's not. It's just not. My dad said a lot of things in his life, good and bad, but nothing will ever replace how those words sounded to me. They were said so quietly, with such finality, that even in a bar that was humming with the sound of music and rowdy pool players, they sounded like a sledgehammer in an echoing cavern. Those five words were everywhere all at once, and I wondered if that's what it was like to be my mother all the time, with those bits of Laura hovering and clinging like a dinner bell in an empty home. So I asked him, I figured what the hell, and I bellied up to the table, leaning close to him on my elbows, with enough urgency that some of my drinks spilled and soaked into the napkins that lay scattered between us. And in that same even tone that had told me in no uncertain terms that my mom would be haunted till the day she died, he told me about Aunt Laura and how she'd crawled into a kitchen cupboard and broken slowly apart. I'm sure I must have looked at him like he was crazy. You have to understand, at that point it had been almost a decade and so much of that time had been spent either wondering what could have happened or having to listen to classmates as they told me what supposedly had. 
a decade is a long time for an imagination, so when he told me the first part, I'd like to think I didn't roll my eyes or do anything appalling. I might have. Alcohol is a hell of a drug, but if I did that, it all ended soon enough. He said it was a little cupboard, right next to the dishwasher, and he paused until I nodded that I knew the one. It was maybe a foot wide in the spot we used to cram baking sheets when we'd visit and help her with the dishes. So my dad takes a long sip of his whiskey, and he says she forced herself in, desperately crawling, judging by how much blood there was. And he said she kept going, kept crawling and scratching and bunching herself up smaller and smaller, that when she was found later that day, it was a trial to find bones that weren't already broken. He said a doctor told him he hadn't seen anything like it that wasn't caused by high-speed car crashes. She'd snapped off every fingernail against the inside of that tiny cupboard, and when that wasn't good enough, she'd chewed on splintering wood until her gums bled, and there were more slivers in her mouth than there were teeth. And as small as she tried to make herself, as she broke her bones one by one, there came a moment when she couldn't break anymore. He said the rescue workers had to cut her out of her own kitchen and that the neighbors hadn't heard the screams until it was too late. I remember vomiting in the back alley behind the bar. It wasn't because of the drink. I haven't been back since, but I think quite often about how I'd sat across from my father and asked him so callously when mom would get over the death of her sister. That's a petty guilt that haunts me even now, and I think about it every time I picture Laura's little body crumpled up in a cupboard like a piece of paper in a tightened fist. I wondered what my mom had been told the day she died, and hoped that it wasn't the full truth, but then I remembered how she'd hidden in her room for days and the black cloud that had followed us ever since, and I knew that it was a childish hope. I asked my dad why and how and all those little questions that go hand in hand with pain, but he just shrugged. He said maybe she was trying to get away, to go somewhere she couldn't be followed. And on that day, in that bar, I mourned for what I thought he meant. And now? Well, I guess I'm mourning what he actually did. Because something is watching me. It has been for weeks, and... I'm afraid there's no place left for me to go. I don't know what it is that's out there, but at the same time, I almost think I do. You have to know what that feels like, right? I think at some point we've all had that fear of spending time in the deepest darknesses of the night, not worrying that we were alone, but worrying that we weren't. I remember what it was like growing out of those childish fears, how every night before bed, once the lights went out, felt like holding your breath for hours on end until the sun rose and you once again could see the world that surrounded you and all the ways the light burned away the watchers in the night. And all that time were forced to lay there in both silence and the agony of uncertainty. At best, alone. And at worst, not at all. I was alone all my life in that sense and now I'm forced to worry that I never will be again. I wish there was some way I could muddle through how it started or why. Uh, I don't know why. I don't exactly know how, but I absolutely know when. I'm trying to be upfront about this, as abrupt and to the point as I possibly can be, because 
I know that I'll chicken out if I don't say any of this to anyone. I'll never admit it to myself, and I think the only chance I've got is if I allow myself to embrace the simple truth that there's something out there, something hidden in the corner of my eye, and it's coming for me. I never really see it, but I feel it near me, and if I close my eyes and listen, and I mean really, really listen, then I hear a voice so far away and possessed of an unfathomable depth, and it says things that I don't understand. I tried once, I really did, but the rooms started spinning, and I think at a certain point my gums started to bleed because my entire mouth began to fill with the bitter taste of copper. The simplest and most basic of truths is the simple fact that I helped my mom empty out Laura's old place. It had acted as a rental for the longest time, but eventually the couple that lived there, I think their names were Jenna and David, well, eventually they moved on with their lives. I think my dad said they wound up getting a spot somewhere in San Francisco, off by the bay. And that's a hell of an upgrade from the house where some strange woman had died. I don't know if anyone ever told them the truth about their kitchen. I don't think they did, but part of the deal of them living there was that the basement and one half of the attic would be off limits and used as storage for Aunt Laura's possessions. It had been an easy enough deal to strike because the assumption was that my mom would pop in after a year or two, post-grieving and once she felt comfortable enough, and clear out all the memories that weren't memory enough to keep while saving the ones that were. It was a perfect plan, really. It just so happened that no one anticipated mom taking a good 15 years to step foot in the house again. I can't say I blame her, really. I once didn't go back to my favorite restaurant for a full year after a bad breakup, and that girl hadn't even died. She just left. So when she called me up one afternoon and asked if I could spend the weekend with her at Laura's cleaning things out, I said sure. Mom said she wanted to sell the whole house this time around, and since I'd been getting after them to retire for almost five years, wasn't about to stand in the way of something that might have finally made that happen. My folks are good people. They're a bit squirrely at times, a little argumentative and political in ways I don't really like or agree with anymore, but they're still the type of good people that deserve good things. I wanted them to snag what was left of their happily ever after, and if that meant being a glorified one-man moving business, I was more than happy to oblige. But I guess, I guess that's all it took. Her house was, I don't know how you'd say it, it wasn't too crazy or anything like that, but it was more than a little wrong. Have you ever walked into a place and just known that you weren't supposed to be there? I guess when I think about it, like really think about it, it's the feeling you get when you wander into some sort of church after renouncing a religion. I don't know too much about that, I never came from a religious family, but I'd guess that's a feeling it left in me. The lingering fear that I'd gotten something wrong, like I was somewhere I wasn't supposed to be and didn't know how to get back. It was something like that. Then again, maybe I'm just full of it. There's a good chance that these past couple months have put a fear in me that has filled in every crack of what came before it, and that there never really was anything wrong with Aunt Laura's house, and whatever followed me home was always going to find me eventually. I think I might like that option a bit more. I, I loved my aunt, and I don't much like the idea of blaming her for what's gone on, even if it does make the most sense. 
It wasn't the worst kind of living conditions I'd seen. Her house, I mean. Granted, it was just a couple rooms of the basement since the last runners had kept up everything else more than well enough, and I paid a good chunk of my college tuition with part-time construction and repair work, so believe me when I say I've seen some actual horror shows. But even if I hadn't, there wasn't anything about her place that was visually upsetting. It was a little messy, a bit cluttered, and every now and then you'd pop into a room with just enough odds and ends that, that it wouldn't have been a far cry to imagine her life as a hoarder if she'd made it another couple decades. And I don't mean that to sound cruel. I think she would have laughed at the thought and denied it with a frail and wavering confidence, but I do know that in one of the rooms sat a pair of makeshift plaques I'd made for her when I was five or six years old, and to say they were gaudy would be a spectacular understatement. They were full of pinks and yellows and all kinds of dried and pressed flowers. The kind of thing only family would pretend to treasure. Then again, maybe she did treasure them. Maybe that's why I found my heart breaking all over again as we cleaned out that empty house that hadn't even left her ghost behind. I know I thought about it, how great it would be if she was still around and maybe that was enough. Maybe all it took for things to go wrong was that I missed someone at exactly the right moment. I just know that something changed, and I don't know what. I don't know why. At first I thought maybe it was something of hers that I took. We separated out her possessions, the ones that spoke to us and brought to life memories that gave us our loved one back, and I wound up with a pair of boxes full of little things I remembered her showing me over the years. There wasn't anything special, a book she used to read to me while she was babysitting, a small pile of antique nails we'd found while metal detecting, you know, that kind of thing. There wasn't anything that hadn't been done by every family since the beginning of fucking time, including my parents, but none of them had ever run across anything like this, and believe me, I know. Because I asked, I asked my folks only to hear confused assurances that there wasn't anything strange about the items they'd taken or the darkness and the other sides of doors. I asked paranormal websites that were run by acne-scarred man-children who would have been better off working in a fast food restaurant. I even spent days poring through libraries, only to find that the most oddities were hidden in the shelves that held books about UFOs, Sasquatches, and the idiots who believed in both of them. There was nothing really about trinkets. There was nothing about the dead things that follow you home. We had her house emptied out by November, and it was sold by mid-December. This wasn't really a reflection of the market so much as all of us being what I guess you could call motivated sellers. We missed Laura, but we were through with the dark cloud that had followed us since she passed. We thought we could mourn in other ways, that we could remember her as she had been, rather than having to see the horrors of her death in every nook and cranny of that old house. That gave me, I guess right around one month of peace. A sliver of bliss that ran right up until New Year's Eve, and then things just started going terribly wrong. There'd been little things, of course. Moments, shadows in the corner of your eye that trick you into seeing a crouching figure next to your bedroom door, only to disappear into a pile of clothes once you flipped a switch. It was kid stuff, really, a child's fear, but it was still there, and it was strange to find that kind of thing affecting me because it never really had before. 
I chalked it up to some fresh trauma that hadn't registered while emptying Laura's home, and that worked right up until the knocking started. Everything else was trivial. Childhood nightmares never gone away, but not that. It's hard to get over living in a world where there's someone constantly trying to get in. And there's something unsettling about it. Knocking, I mean. It's ordinary and simple, but I think I always had some sort of anxiety from an early age. I remember the mailman coming up the long walk and arriving at our front door, and I still feel that creeping fear I felt as I watched through the blinds, wondering when he'd go away. I guess you could say I was a bit of a wimp back then. My parents couldn't even take me out to trick-or-treat when Halloween rolled around because I'd have nightmares for weeks. There was one time when Aunt Laura snuck me out into the autumn cold, hustling me from door to door when my parents went out for a spooky date night, and I did just fine until a towering figure answered the bell in a gorilla mask that I still remember to this day. Looking back, it was probably just a teenager, but in my childish eyes, he was so much more, and I don't think I slept right for a month. So yeah, I've always been a bit on edge. Losing Laura didn't help, and everything else? Well, I guess it just kicked me down a flight of stairs, didn't it? It all came to a head last night, on New Year's Eve. Over the past couple days, I kept hearing this knocking in the walls, but it was the dead of winter and the temperatures had been plummeting, so I just chalked it up to pipes getting warmed up for the long haul. I don't think it was, though. Now that I think about it, I don't think that's what it was at all. Because, see, I'd been having a rough couple nights. We'd all taken those boxes of mementos from Aunt Laura's and the past couple nights while I'd been listening to Christmas music and drinking a glass of red wine, I found myself poking through mine as if they were grab bags. Mostly it was photos, and I'd cry when I saw us all stood together, her head leaning against my shoulder. But there were little items and knickknacks as well. She always had this strange way about her in that she'd wander into used stores and just pick something. Secondhand stores or antique shops, that kind of thing. She always told me that she never knew why she did. She just did. She said maybe everything in reality is gifted with a consciousness and only some of us could hear them. And I remember her telling me about them when I was younger, about how her little items called to her, but that's about the extent of it. Whatever the specifics were had been drowned in time and grief, so all I really had was the knowledge that they were important somehow, and that was good enough for me. She was a good lady, a fine aunt, and if I could keep her strange little tradition going, then I would. It only seemed fair that I take them with me, along with the bits of our time spent together I managed to fill the box with as well. They may not have been the crux of my time spent with her, but they were strong enough little totems that each one took me back to a time and place in which we sat on the living room floor and she told me strange stories about what it was like to feel and see anything and everything all at once. But anyway, uh, New Year's Eve, sorry, it's, it's hard to stay on track right now. I was okay. I wasn't drunk. I know if you tell anyone about this, they'll say that I'd recently gone through a breakup and I was probably having a rough night, but I wasn't. Truth is, I was just kind of depressed. This is one of the first holiday seasons that I haven't been able to spend any time with my folks at all, and that just started to weigh a bit heavily given enough time. 
none of us really felt right after cleaning out Laura's house, and even though that might have been just a shadow of guilt that comes with moving on, it just added to what I already had on my plate, to the point that I found myself sitting in my apartment and reading a book on my living room sofa instead of going out with some friends to celebrate the arrival of the new year. My phone kept going off as messages flowed in, wondering where I was and if I was coming, but to be honest, I just felt like I was better off alone. It seemed like a good idea to end the year on my own terms. That way I could step into the next one as exactly the person I wanted to be. So I ignored the vibrations of an ignored ringtone and did my best to decompress and let every fear, anxiety, and crippling loss fall away from me so that it could be left behind when the world became another year older. I think it would have worked, you know? I really do. I think if everything had gone exactly as it was supposed to, I'd be getting on with my life by now, and everything that had happened to our family would literally have gotten lost in the past. That's how these things are supposed to go. And I was just sitting there, on my favorite gray couch that sat next to the sliding glass door. The shades were drawn due to the late hour, and even though I've never had issue with people staring through my windows, it always loomed with just enough potential that I never wanted to take the chance. I remember everything about that moment. The way my phone buzzed with unanswered texts, the way the cheap lamp next to me tottered this way and that every time I tapped my foot in an attempt to burn off some nervous energy. I think I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life. It's as if it's been frozen in a painting, like every bit of my life in that instant was stopped, and I haven't found a way to get things going again. It was just a few hours ago, just a few hours, so... So why does it feel so much longer? Tap. Just like that. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything I hadn't heard a million times before. It was just a tap. Tap. I remember the way it sounded. Just like my windshield one winter several years ago when the cold had caused one small crack to split into something almost a foot long. It was just a common, simple thing that you can hear any day of the week whether it's a house settling or a branch tapping against a rain gutter on a stormy night. But there was something else to it, something more. And even though I didn't know what or how or why, my head tilted slightly to the side and I froze where I sat. Somewhere off in the distance, my phone continued to buzz, but all I could focus on was the sound that had been and the anxiety that could come from the sound that might still be. I've always had this thing, okay? I don't know why, but it seems to happen when I'm incredibly tired. In those moments, when I'm wide awake but so close to being done for the day, my mind goes to some weird places. And it's on autopilot, really. It just feels fear, I guess. Unbelievable and unstoppable fear. I can be standing in the middle of my apartment on a quiet winter day, and I can develop the most unshakable certainty that if I open my front door and look down the hall, I'll see a man standing so tall that his head is tilted and pressed against the ceiling, teeth falling from his mouth and hitting the wooden hallway floors like hailstones. And I'll find myself believing that, standing stock still in the middle of my living room, too terrified to move, too scared that he might hear me. And then I'll hear the refrigerator kick in and it'll snap me out of whatever state I've fallen into, 
but only long enough for me to hear the whir of its fan that begins to make me feel like there is someone in my house and they're breathing slow and heavy breaths. The breaths of a hunter, the panting of the hungry. Tap. I'm just coming clean about my anxieties because I want you to know that I know my own mind. I understand it, I, I really do. And I'm not saying that in an effort to be some guy who read enough online articles to come to some conclusion better left to doctors and people who actually know what the hell they're talking about. And I know that there's at least one thing in my head that hasn't always worked quite right. One infinitely small screw that might need tightening. I'm telling you all this because I've been through all that a hundred times before. I spent my entire childhood being scared of my own shadow and weird figures in the dark and a teenager's Halloween mask. I'm telling you all this because that moment, just a few hours ago, sat on my sofa by the sliding glass door. It wasn't that. It wasn't even close. It was a knock. A knock on the sliding glass door that led out to my balcony. And that wouldn't have been too much of a problem, really, if a homeless guy had stumbled up from the Walmart that glowed blue-white lights up the street and tried to force his way in. I could have been ready for that, but I live on the fourth floor, and my balcony sits almost 40 feet up. So when the first knock hit, I froze and turned to watch the blinds that were still as stone, hanging and blocking my view of whatever sat ice-cold on the other side. I remember what it was like to feel the breath freeze and hold in my lungs, and how unreasonably terrified I was to be in my apartment alone. And I remember what it was like to take a deep breath and turn back to the television, closing my eyes if only for a moment, and how I felt like my old self when they opened. I told myself it was just the clanging of a pipe, some sound that moved through the wall and sounded like it was coming from someplace impossible. There were no trees on the complex property, nothing to knock against the glass. It was a strange and ridiculous thing to be afraid of, but I'd been in a bit of a state since coming back from Aunt Laura's. It's strange how you can think you've moved on from something that happened so long ago, only to come across it right where you left it and realize that it had never gone, and it was always sitting just outside the door. Tap. Do you know the feeling when your mouth goes dry and everything stops? Stops so fast that even the clock ticking on the wall goes silent? It was like that. It was exactly like that. This time I was listening, my head half cocked, and when the taps came one after the other, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that there were no knocking pipes. I was only three feet from the blinds that hid the outside world from me, and I knew in that moment that it wasn't childhood fear, it wasn't unresolved trauma. There was something knocking on my door, late at the night, in the snow and cold on the final day of the year. And there shouldn't have been. Wait, let me, let me put that differently. There couldn't have been. There should have been a snow-covered balcony and 40 feet down. That's it. But it wasn't. There was someone outside, someone less than five feet away, and they were... tap. I think at that moment, I found myself thinking about her, and I really can't tell you why. I'm sure just about anyone would tell you that it's a simple enough mental journey to make, that hearing what had actually happened to her had traumatized me, that going to her old place and moving out the last remnants of her life had opened every old wound, 
and now maybe my perennially overactive imagination had gone into overdrive because I was a little depressed and adrift in the life I'd somehow wandered into. Maybe it was the box of her things I knew was in my closet, claimed but not given a proper home. You could tell me a dozen different things, and there's a good chance I'd believe almost every one of them. There's always a plausible and realistic reason why things happen, I know that, but I don't think this was any of them. And you can laugh at me all you want, but I know when I'm acting crazy, and I know when something has gone terribly wrong. There's a difference, and I've always been able to look back with some clarity on the events of my singular moments. I could pause, think back even an hour later, and realize how stupid it was to be afraid of something that wasn't there. But this wasn't that. I, I swear to God, this wasn't that. There was something more to it, and I could feel every hint and whisper like slivers in my skin. They dug in and lingered, and every time I tried to pull them out, they broke and splintered again, over and over. And I found myself so frozen and locked in place that even if the door had slid slowly open, and even if the blinds had parted to let in whoever was knocking, I don't think there was a chance in hell I was going to be able to move. Do you want to know the funniest thing? I think I knew without a shadow of a doubt that it was her. Maybe that's why I froze the way I did. I've read a lot of stories and believed in ghosts almost always, even when I eventually embraced agnosticism on all fronts, but no matter what, I always believed in the good kind. I like to think of the lost souls, the ones who had yet to complete the tests and tasks of their mortal lives and were forced to linger and wander until they were complete. Those were my kinds of ghosts. I think, in that moment, in my living room and with an unseen guest on the other side of blinds and glass, I realized there was no such thing. Not for me, anyway, because I felt no lingering comfort. I felt no love. All I felt was a crippling and sinister fear that draped like a wet blanket in a blizzard and suffocated like a plastic bag. I knew Laura was out there. I, I just knew. But it wasn't the Laura I remembered, the one smiling awkwardly in our family pictures. It was the one that was left behind. The one that was broken and shattered into pieces so small that a shot glass could have held the bones of her arm. Tap. The one folded up like a lawn chair, squeezed and cramped so tightly that her blood ran from that tiny cabinet like a waterfall. Tap. I found myself watching the blinds, waiting for movement even though they hung slack and lifeless without even a fan to disturb them. But I still waited. I tried to see through the narrow slivers of the black night, even though I didn't actually want to see anything at all. I tried to think of anything and anyone else, but all that came to mind was the woman who'd been with me in so many memories, and one by one she was replaced in those snapshot moments by a hideous thing that broke and broke again like a malfunctioning Rubik's Cube. Somehow I think I would have preferred that over what I knew was waiting for me outside. Each time the tap sounded, breaking the silence with a rhythmless fear, I saw her crouched and folded in the snow that covered my balcony, broken and shredded skin turning blue and white in the cold. I saw tendons and loose muscle blowing in the wind like strands of white hair. And I saw her eyes as they tried to roll back in her head despite the slivers that poked through her eyelids like porcupine quills. 
one hand outstretched, and now little more than the bottom third of a useless finger, tapping exposed bone against the glass wall that separated her from me. The only thing I felt in the air was my own fear, and her desire that a quiet tap could shatter the door that sat between us, and I wondered how much blood was soaking the fresh snow I'd yet to shovel away. I wondered if frozen wounds could clot, or if dead blood ran like a faucet through all broken dead things. Tap. None of this happened immediately. They weren't repetitive. For almost a half hour, they happened so infrequently and were spaced apart by several minutes, and as soon as I had almost managed to calm down and take a breath, that sound would break my silence all over again and I wondered if a tap on frozen glass had always sounded like brittle bones breaking or if that was something new. I was always this close to getting up and walking out, to calling back whoever was leaving such desperate messages that I could only imagine, but I didn't. There was, I think, a part of me that was so certain it was a mistake of fate mixed with a volatile mind that might have been at its weakest. I wanted so much to believe that Laura wasn't sitting outside in the snow, waiting so patiently for me to open the door, and would you believe I almost pulled it off? Sometimes I like to think I almost made it. Maybe I could have run for it and gone out and joined my friends. I like to think in that world I would have come back to a silent home and an empty balcony. Maybe whatever was out there would have left and gone on to trouble someone else with the perils of how their lives had turned out, but I didn't. Not in time, anyway. If you ask me a hundred times why I didn't just leave, I don't know that I'd ever have an answer for you. Frozen so still, like I was on the other side of the door, sitting in sub-zero temperatures and not my broken dead family, that I don't even know if it ever occurred to me to run until it was too late. The door was locked, so maybe I felt safe. The shades were drawn, so maybe I felt safe. Laura was dead, so she couldn't hurt me, so maybe I felt safe. I was all alone, so... Tap. There, that, that sound, tap. Slow and as evenly spaced as a metronome, but so deliberate so persistent that they sounded like an echoing church bell off in the distance. I almost called my parents then and asked them what they would do. I almost did a lot of things, really. Sometimes I like to imagine what it would have been like if I'd left and joined Michael and his friends in their New Year's Eve celebration. Maybe I would have met someone that would have pulled me out of whatever spiral I'd stumbled across. That's a nice thing to think about. Honestly, even if it wasn't that, maybe I would have just had the kind of nice time that would have pulled me out of my funk and had me thinking about Laura less and less until eventually she faded completely away. I had a creeping feeling she was just there because I was thinking about her and had been ever since my father had drunkenly told me about her horrible death, but then again, that might not have been it at all. It's highly possible that whatever had found her had now found me. I stared at the sliding glass door, at the blinds that hid her from me, and I listened to the desperate knock of something that looked so much like the damaged dead. That was, I, I don't know, a couple hours ago? I never did leave, I don't think. Not in the way that mattered. I'm almost positive I just fell asleep at some point after hours spent staring at my living room door, 
waiting for it to stop knocking, waiting for it to crack or shatter or slide slowly open. It didn't do any of those things, at least I don't think it did. And when I woke bleary-eyed to find slivers of New Year light spilling through the cracks in the blinds, I did the only thing I could think to do. I feel terrible about it, really, but my complex is almost near the edge of town and there's a large empty lot about a quarter mile to the north. Anyway, I took Aunt Laura's boxes that were our memories out past the tall grass that grew yellow and dead through the snow and set it on fire once I hit packed earth. I poured everything I could into it. Uh, household chemicals, bug spray, rubbing alcohol, and anything else I could find that had the right label, and then I struck a match and tossed it in. You can't possibly know what that was like, to watch the fire rise and see photos of you and a woman you'd never see again, curl slowly into burnt embers never to be replaced. It felt like I was betraying her, turning against her, and choosing fear over the family I had already lost. But I just couldn't be sure. I, I had no way of knowing what I'd brought into my home or what had followed the trail through the snow until it arrived outside my balcony door, and I didn't want to take any chances. Maybe it was only the one item, one item I wasn't sure of, but maybe it was all of them. Maybe the thing that looked like the very last version of Laura could feel and sense and smell her on every piece of what I'd taken from her home, like a hunter or a predator. A wolf in the night. As I stood in the middle of that plowed and empty lot, I called my parents. Well, I tried to. My fingers were numb from the cold as I listened to the snap and pop of the flames breaking down treasured memories. So twice I dialed the wrong number, but when I finally got through, I heard a constant dial tone. I thought about last night, and wondered where the thing that looked like Aunt Laura would have gone if it had given up on trying to get to me. I thought about my mother, and her armload of memories of her sister, and how lost she'd looked inside the walls of that empty home. I thought about my dad, and how gingerly he'd carried our last family portrait from her attic. And as the fire grew, the crack of photo glass breaking the silent winter morning, I called their next door neighbors. The Fitzgeralds were always home and they often checked on the place whenever my parents ducked out for a little vacation so they'd know if something was wrong. They could check on my parents and make sure everything was all right and that they weren't packed into a refrigerator or shoebox or drawer. I kept thinking about that as the phone rang. I wondered if they'd fit in the same space as Aunt Laura or if they'd have to go separately one by one. Maybe I was so afraid of the thing outside my door that I was feeling relief that it had gone somewhere else, even if that somewhere else was to another home, another family member, and the last little piece of my life. I pressed the phone tighter against my ear as the fire raged and the wind picked up. Or maybe that last bit was a snowplow I was hearing in the distance, crunching snow as it pushed and moved. It was enough that I plugged one finger in my ear as I held the phone tight to the other, waiting for the news, waiting to fall to my knees upon hearing that my parents had left me behind because I hadn't the common sense to call them as soon as I heard Aunt Laura knocking on my door. My breath caught in my throat when Elle's voice cracked to life on the other end of the line, but then I asked her if everything was alright. 
I asked if there were police outside and if my parents were all right. I asked if they'd heard any loud knocking the night before and if someone had gone to check on my family in time. I thought about them choking on blood and splinters and wondered if it should have been me. They're fine, Alex. I, I can see them shoveling the walk from here. Why? What's, what's wrong? Do you, do you want me to call them over? I barely remember hanging up the phone and sliding it back into my pocket as the fire continued to destroy everything that was left. Each time some new piece of glass broke or some new fresh ember caught, a loud pop would break the silence. Like a knock. Like a tap. Like a knuckle on the glass. Pop. I watched as our family photo turned black. I watched as a pendant she'd always worn with her parents locked safely inside melted and fell slowly apart. And as the snowplow grew closer, that loud crunch and scrape of pushing snow, I turned to wave and explain myself. The year was young and I didn't want any trouble. I had so many plans, so many ideas on how to get back in control of things that I couldn't even begin to fathom how obnoxious it would be to have to deal with some sort of petty vandalism charge. I suppose it makes sense, really. Pop. I guess I should have known. Standing outside in the cold, in an empty and deserted construction lot that had been abandoned for the season, there wasn't anywhere I could run. No door to hide behind. No cupboard to crawl into. There was just me. And as I stood in the snow in my bare feet, wondering why I couldn't feel anything, I watched the figure that wasn't a distant snowplow crawl towards me, picking up speed when it saw that I'd seen her. I don't know why she bothered, there wasn't even a drain pipe I could force myself into, and even the box of her things had broken apart in the flames, but I understand why she'd done it. I really do. As I watched her broken bone rubbed raw of its tendons scrabble across frozen earth, her mouth full of splinters and blood that fell with every grunt that carried her along the ground, faster and faster, I knew I would have done anything to try to get away. I would have forced myself into any space. I would have broken myself apart into such little pieces that my family could have found me in a matchbox. But there was nowhere to go. There was nowhere left. I'd stepped out into the world, and it had followed me. My aunt's broken body sped towards me, crawling across the snow, leaving a trail of wood and blood and bits of skin. And even though it looked like she was wearing tattered clothes or red robes, as she got closer it became clear that she wasn't. I guess it makes sense that when you die forcing yourself through small spaces, large strips get pulled away but I had no idea human skin could flutter in the air like forgotten flags. I hated that this would be how I'd remember her. We'd made so many memories together. But when her splinter-filled eyes met mine and her mouth hung open in a cavernous grin, I knew I was the only one who remembered them, the only one who remembered us. And when her neck whipped first one way and then the other, the cracks of broken and splintered bone didn't sound anything like a tap. It wasn't tentative. It was the knock of someone coming home. I started to cry as my Aunt Laura brought herself up onto all fours and began to run at me. 
I didn't, I didn't like how she looked. I didn't like the sound her skin made as it dragged and trailed across the crusted snow. I didn't like the echo of her every breaking bone. The fire burned warm behind me, and I wished I had somewhere to run. Knock, knock.